0: Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you here today. I'm excited that we're here to worship together and talk about some things that are very important for all of us. Uh, For those of you that were here last week, you know we started a new series called Five Smooth Stones. And uh, this is the story about David and Goliath, the the fight, the battle between those two. Uh, And we saw that Israel's army came out against their enemy, the Philistines. And uh, last week, we learned a little bit about Goliath and also about our enemy, the devil, who the Bible says is uh, walking around actively seeking people to devour. But the ultimate story of God's power uh, is to deliver his people. And so today I want us to spend a little bit of time learning more about the man God chose to stand against Goliath and um, why God chose him for this role. Sometimes ordinary people can do extraordinary things. In fact, it is probably more often that an ordinary person does something that seems to most of us as extraordinary. Uh, I I saw a little video clip of a talk that Jim Valvano gave years ago, and uh, I just wanted to play that little clip for you because it speaks to what I want to share today. So watch this clip with
1: me. How I do my job. I had like six minutes left. How I do my job in a competitive field. How each day I try to beat the Notre Dames, North Carolinas, and everybody else. How am I going to do that? All right, I think everybody has to have a personal philosophy of how you live your life. All right, here's mine. Very simply put, you plus motivation equals success. I have that only thing in my locker room. There's nothing else in my locker room but that sign. You plus motivation equals success. I have it on cards, bookmarkers. I have it on everything. Right, it's, it's, what, it's it drives me. It's a passion. I was 16 years old. I heard the Reverend Bob Richards speak. Remember him, the Wheaties guy? The Kathleen uh, uh, Poval, Champion Olympics? And this is what he said, right? Gentlemen gentleman said it before, but this is what, this is what, I was 16. Bob Richards looked over a group of these young kids at a basketball camp and said, The Lord must have loved ordinary people because he made so many of us. And here I am, 16, thinking I'm special. And here's a man I respect, said, The Lord must have loved ordinary people. He made so many of us ordinary. And I was, you know, you get a little down at 16 when someone's telling you that. And then he said the line that changed my life at 16 that I felt then. I'm 41 years old. I've been working 21 years in my business, and I feel it the same way today. He said, every single day, in every walk of life, ordinary people do extraordinary things. Ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things. And I raised my hand. I'm applying for the job right now. I'm an ordinary guy. I want to do extraordinary things in my life. And I believe it. I think that's true. I think that's what it's all about.
0: Man, I love that guy. Um, Other than the part about beating Carolina, I, I appreciate everything that he said there. But God has always used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And David, you know, in the Bible is described, actually in the New Testament, says he was a man after God's own heart. And sometimes, you know, when we hear a statement like that about somebody, we forget that they were very ordinary when they started out, that he was an ordinary size for his age and his upbringing was fairly ordinary for the time. David became a mighty king later, but he began as a little humble shepherd boy. Uh, He had a family, he had brothers, he had chores, and many of the normal things kids his age would have had to do at that time. He was normal, he was not superhuman, but he was called by God. And friends, we are ordinary people too. And God has called us to do his will, which can often lead to some extraordinary outcomes. Because when an ordinary person works with God, God can do extraordinary things. And the problem is that we convince ourselves that since we're ordinary, not only could it not be true that we could achieve anything beyond ourselves, but also that God would certainly never call us to do such a thing. I'm I'm just an ordinary person. And yet that is exactly what God has always done. You read throughout scriptures and you read time and time again of someone who's just going about their business, someone that is ordinary, that God calls to do something extraordinary. David was an unlikely hero. Chosen by God for this moment. And this week, we look at what David, uh, or what made David special and unique. And we discover along the way that God often chooses those who are physically weak, or maybe not the strongest, or inexperienced, to prove his strength and his faithfulness. So why did God choose a young man like David? He had bigger, stronger fighters. In fact, Saul, at one time, who was the king, uh, he was the greatest warrior. In fact, God chose him because he was bigger and stronger and the best fighter. But Saul wanted all the glory for himself. And ultimately, the reason God chooses ordinary people is because of this big idea for today. God gets the glory when ordinary people do extraordinary things. I want you to think about that. The glory belongs to God, not to us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for using ordinary people like us in your divine plan. Thank you for... Uh, bringing salvation through Jesus, your son, and adopting us through him as sons and daughters of your kingdom. And Father, we come to you and we ask you to help us to face down the giants in our lives with the simple faith like David had. Father, let us never underestimate what you can do through ordinary people like us when we put our faith and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. Now, last week we read the first 11 verses as we were introduced to the challenger named Goliath. And today we're going to start reading in verse 12 as we meet a very ordinary shepherd boy. So let's go down to verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now, for those of you that weren't here, the Philistine is Goliath. And he stands nine and a half feet tall. We had a little balloon showing us how big he was last week. And so every day for 40 days, he's coming out there challenging the people of God. Verse 17, now Jesse said to his son David, take this uh, ephah of uh, roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. And now I'll just say it seems a little weird that they're shouting that war cry trying to sound so ferocious, and they're scared of one Goliath, right? Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. So far, so good, right? He's doing what his father asked him to do. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. And when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, uh, that gives us some insight into David and his family, doesn't it? This passage shows us what David was like and what he spent his time doing. He already, we already know that uh, soon he will uh, be the one that's going to take on and defeat the giant Goliath. But who really was the man of God chosen to fight? Well, first of all, we know David was young. Uh, we learn in verse 14 that David was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. Now, maybe you remember in the previous chapter that David was anointed to be the next king after Saul's death. Just one chapter earlier, Samuel the prophet showed up at Jesse's doorstep and said God had sent him there and he was to bring out his sons. And one of those sons was going to be Chosen as the next king. Well, Jesse brought out one after the other, the oldest and the strongest, uh, all the way down, and none of them was the one. And finally, Samuel says, do you, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, well, uh, this is all my sons except for the, you could have said the little one, <laughs> out in the field with the sheep. That's David. So when Samuel moved past all those other sons, uh, this was the only one left. And so uh, it's sort of like saying, oh, you talking about David? Uh, don't worry about him. He's just, he's just tending the family's livestock in the field. Uh, he's not the one you're looking for. But you see, he was the one God was looking for. David was the youngest. All the other boys were taller and bigger and stronger, more king-like, you know, according to human standards. But there's a key phrase that the Lord says to Samuel during that scene in chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow, I mean, just really think about what that's saying. It's a powerful statement that God made to Samuel. Really about David, but also about all of us. God does not judge people like we do. He looks deeper. He looks at the heart. He looks at our motivations. He looks at uh, who we really worship in life. It, It makes you wonder if David was chosen, even though he was the youngest of his brothers, because of what was going on internally. Now, our natural tendency is to judge a book by its cover. Have any of you ever done that? You, you looked at somebody and you automatically, you, you decided in your mind what that person was like. Either, either they were great or they were small, depending on the way you were looking at them. Many of us know what happens when we pass judgment on someone before really getting to know them. Back in the summer of 1982, I traveled to England on a missionary internship And uh, uh, just recently, uh, my sister Elaine and and Ben, her husband, uh, they found this little book uh, that was in my mother's belongings. Now, I had no idea she had this, but this was my diary of my trip to uh, England and Scotland back in 1982. And every day I would write notes about the people that I had met and studied the Bible with, and it's even got some heather from Scotland that probably needs to be thrown away now. It's uh, pretty dried and old. But one of the things the missionary there wanted us to do uh, was to go into the neighborhoods and set up appointments to have Bible studies. And um, if you know anything about England, you know that probably the, the number of believers is dwindling Uh, you know, rapidly, the missionary, uh, he assumed that because I was from North Carolina, (laughs) I was a Southern American, that I would be uncomfortable speaking to some of those black neighbors that lived in that neighborhood. And so he assigned me to go talk to them because he thought I needed to learn a lesson. Now he didn't know that some of my best friends in high school were the black guys I played football with. Um, so I I didn't have a problem talking to people. But the the thing that got me was not that they were black, but most of them were Rastafarians. Do any of y'all know anything about Rastafarians? Uh, they they have dreadlocks, you know, real long dreads that come out. And uh, they smoke weed. Uh, They call it ganja, you know. And um, so, now, I hadn't been around a lot of people with uh, dreadlocks and who smoked weed, okay. Now, I'll say some of my friends in high school did the latter, but I wasn't with them when they did it, okay. (laughs) Um, So, I, I, I did go to some of those places with a little bit of trepidation. But I learned a valuable lesson, and I'm glad he sent me there. Uh, And and that goes back to this idea that you can't judge a book by its cover. I had some very deep conversations with those Rastas about God. In fact, some of the best conversations I had. They were some of the most welcoming people. Some of the middle-class British people, When I walked up to their door and knocked on the door, they slammed the door in my face. I don't need God. I don't need to hear about this stuff. But the Rastas were very open to talking to me. Um, Most of them were young. They were poor. They had been rejected by society. But they were the ones more willing to talk. Now, isn't it interesting that throughout Scripture, God chooses to use people who are the youngest and the weakest and the poorest sometimes the least educated, the marginalized, and forgotten about to do extraordinary things for him. And if you find yourself in one of those categories today, regardless of what the culture has defined you as, the Bible makes it clear that God intends to use you for more than you know. Paul considered himself to be an ordinary person called by God to do an extraordinary work. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and following, we read, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, he's saying you were pretty ordinary people That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul understood the truth that God chooses those who are weak by the world's judgment to do what is strong or extraordinary so that God will receive the glory. God seems to delight in using the weak and unexpected things of the world to humble the powerful. And at the end of the day, it's all for his glory and not ours. Now, let's look again at this young man named David. Uh, another thing we learn from this story is that David was belittled. That means people were mocking David, making fun of David. Now, I'm going to tell you, we, we live in a culture where people do this to each other. And, you know. You you just watch some YouTube videos, you'll see what I'm talking about. How people would get in each other's faces and they would just run each other down. Even though God chose to use David for great things, as in the battle with Goliath, it did not stop people from doubting him. Even those people who should have been closest to him, people who you'd think would be the first to support him and encourage him, actually belittled him. In verse 28, out of all the people to make a statement of doubt about David, who was it? It was his own brother. Uh, And he went after him. I mean, he, he was saying some terrible things. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him. I mean, he was mad at David. Why have you come down here? He was judging David. I mean, David was doing exactly what his father told him to do, but now his brother's judging him. And, and did you notice how he belittled the work David did? You know, you left those few sheep in the wilderness. <laughs> like, that's not so much of a job. And then he even went to say David was conceited and how wicked David's heart was. And how the only reason he came down there was to see a fight, you know. Now it sounds like da- Eliab didn't even want David around. Now, maybe if David had brought the food out there to him, it would have been a different story. I don't know. But the verse, again, says he burned in anger. Maybe he felt threatened by David's presence. Maybe his presence simply caught Eliab off guard. Or maybe he truly felt like his little brother was trying to steal some of his glory. But after all, it was earlier that David had been appointed king, right? Eliab, he was rejected as the next king. David, the youngest, was anointed as the next king. Now, some have made educated guesses that David was anointed somewhere around the age of 10 to 15 years old. Not exactly sure, but that's sort of the age range we're looking at. And when he faced Goliath at this moment that we're reading about, most believe David was between 16 to 19 years old. Now, we know that you had to be 20 to serve in the army of Israel, And he wasn't old enough to serve in the army yet. Either way, it's clear to see that even someone within his own family was looking down upon him. He went so far as to call David, again, conceited and wicked. Is it because of his youthful age, his inexperience? Did his brother really think David just showed up to watch a battle? I mean, it's a tense scene, with a reminder that oftentimes we look down upon those who are younger than us. Do, do you ever think that the older generation looks down upon the younger generation? These kids aren't, aren't ever going to amount to anything. You know, have, have you ever heard somebody say something? We, we can see them as a hindrance or an obstacle to whatever goal we want to achieve. But with this in mind, the Bible seems to have some some things to say to young people, like what Paul wrote to his young student, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because of you are what? Young. Because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, to Paul, age wasn't the problem. And he was saying, hey, you, you Timothy, you, you may be young compared to a lot of the other folks who may be judging you, but you set the example. So it, it's sad that a younger person would sometimes have to set an example for an older person. But all you young people in here, you can do this. You can be the example for the rest of us. There's nothing stopping you because if with you and God, you can do it. Now, this was the Apostle Paul writing to a young leader named Timothy. And Paul seemed to understand the reality that people will find ways to look down on you and to belittle you. They will criticize certain aspects of your life. They will talk behind your back, especially if you're trying to live a Christian life. They will try to give you tons of reasons you can't do something that you believe God wants you to do. They will question your motives. And you can be sure that if you step out in faith, people will belittle you. And you may lose friends. I read about a a young man named Beckett Cook. I don't know if any of you have ever seen him. He's got some YouTube videos But for years, Beckett Cook had a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world. And during that time, he he lived a fully engaged life as a gay man in Hollywood. And Cook said, I had many boyfriends over the years, attended pride parades, and marched in innumerable rallies for gay marriage equality. My identity as a gay man was immutable, or so I thought. In 2009, he experienced something he says was extraordinary. He had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood for the first time. He explained, I walked into the church a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. He says, I was stunned by this reversal. And since then, I no longer identify as gay, but rather choose to be celibate because I believe God's plan and purpose revealed in the Bible is authoritative, true, and good. Surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy. I still struggle with vestiges of same-sex attraction, But denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality, it's in Jesus. But instead of celebrating Cook for his authenticity, when he came out as a Christian (laughs) uh, to his friends, he was met with skepticism and in some cases outright hostility. His closest friends abandoned him. His production design agency in Hollywood dropped him under some vague and frivolous pretext, even though he was one of their top artists. And he would say this, I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim, what I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Like the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm learning to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh, but being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. Man, isn't that amazing? And here's a guy, somebody somebody looked past that shell. Yes, gay atheist, you would think, he ain't never coming to church, right? But somebody got him into church and it changed his life. God is using Beckett Cook to bring people out of sinful lifestyles and into a relationship with Christ. He has been ridiculed and rejected, but he believes it's worth the cost. William Carey once said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And Jesus said, let the little children or let the children come to me. And I love Paul's encouragement to Timothy to set that example for other believers in speech and conduct. In love and faith and in purity. Friends, regardless of how others decide to define us, we need to understand how it worked with David. David knew God chose him for a moment like this. David successfully defended his father's flock many times in the wilderness, and he was about to set an undeniable example of faith and courage. For the whole army and all of Israel to witness. You see, David's perspective on the broader situation throughout the story seems to be due to his intense focus on one particular place. We get a glimpse of that in verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Did you you see that David was God-focused? That's our last point today. David was God-focused. Who is this guy coming out to defy the armies of the living God? That's why this statement is so important. It shows us David's focus was never on the army And it really wasn't even on the opponent. David doesn't refer to Goliath as one who is allowed to defy the armies of Saul or of Israel. Instead, he refers to him as one who defies the armies of the living God. David's faith in God is so much bigger than the giant that he faced. The battle to David had already been won because the battle belonged to God And David was just going to be God's instrument. David did not think he was so great that he could go out there on his own and fight a giant.
1: But he knew that
0: God was greater than that giant. And it's passages like 1 Samuel 17 and and what we've read today that show us why David was called a man after God's own heart. And I wonder What would shift in our own lives, in our own marriages, in our own families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, if we decided to maintain a focus on God above all things, above all the stuff people are pulling, upon all the things people are saying, upon all of the drama people want to create... If we would focus on God, I don't just mean saying we we have our sights set on pleasing and honoring God or only doing so if it aligns with our, our will and ways. We must make the decision, as David did, to be so focused on God and on God's kingdom that we immediately recognize someone or something coming out against it. There will always be Goliaths in our lives seeking to incite fear and doubt in our minds and in the hearts of the people of God. But what happens if we believe like David did that the Almighty God is bigger and more powerful than all of these giants who come against him? What are who are the giants in your life? What are the things or the situations that make you feel completely inadequate or insufficient or unable. Remember that part of what empowered David was his understanding of who he was before God. He understood he was a part of God's people. He was a beloved son of God. And we've gotta remain like John 15, five says, attached to the vine. We read, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I want to encourage you to press into Jesus this week and stay focused on God. All the other stuff. Look, you focus on God, he can handle all of it. Remember who you are because of him. And remember that God says about you always trumps what the enemy says, the lies people may say, or what anybody else may think, what God thinks of you is more important. And at the end of the day, when all is said and done, it's all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the story of David. We, we thank you for showing the, us that an ordinary young man can be used in an extraordinary way to bring victory for you. And I pray, Father, that all of us might take heart in that example. I pray, Father, that uh, we would not shy away from the giants that... Come against us, uh, and, and that we would recognize that even more than being against us, they are against you. So, Father, help us to stand firm. Uh, maybe, as Ephesians tells us, to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the enemy as he comes against us and as he comes against you and your kingdom. Father, help us to be examples to others. And Father, I pray that all the young people in here would not feel like, well, because I'm young, uh, I can't be an example. No, it, the exact opposite is true. Every person in here can be an example of what you do in our lives when we put our faith and trust in you. So, Lord, as we go out today, uh, I pray that we would really be focused on you and what your will is. And what you can do in life when we put that trust and faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.